Hello, everyone, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the lifelong learning podcast where I indulge whatever topic has caught my fancy lately and just uh, learn anything I want about it. And you guys get to listen to me talk about it for an hour. Uh, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. So this episode. Yes. This episode is part one of what will be uh, a series on comparative mythology. Very cool. Um, I don't expect the next parts to come out right away. They're going to be spaced out just whenever. We're going to sprinkle them um, in. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's going to be a part about flood myths and a part about dragons. But um, Everyone loves dragons. I have yet to meet someone that doesn't at least think dragons are pretty okay. Yeah. I don't know anyone that does not like dragons. Um, I do know some people that don't really like fire. Oh. Um, to what segue about poison? to this episode's topic. <laughs> or fire. Let's go there. Yeah. Let's do that. I, I'm trying to steer us in that direction because that, that's what I want to talk about. Great. Well, good maneuvering. Is, is fire. Um, namely, the theft of fire. Hmm. For the humans. Um, usually. Yeah. Yes, usually for the humans. Um, I'm not really going to talk about things that aren't the theft of fire. Okay. So cultures that don't have that origin story for fire. I don't have time for you. <laughs> this is not about you. Right. Um, this is about all the many different cultures that have a theft of fire myth. And typically the theft of fire is like theft of fire from the gods or, or some sort of power, right? Um, yes and no. Oh, that's an um, interesting question that seems to go against itself. <laughs> well, this is the introduction. Right. We, we will, you know, learn about it throughout. So, like, yes, there are, of course, instances of theft from the gods, but mm-hmm. there are many instances um, where it's not necessarily gods that are being stolen from okay um so as i said it's very it's a common motif theft of fire yes uh the two most well-known examples i'm pretty sure you're gonna guess the first most well-known one right now Mm, prometheus yeah yes number one ding 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 it's like family feud what's the number two show me the board (laughs) yeah what's your number two answer and don't look at my screen i'm not the number i actually don't know what the number two answer is going to be uh maui Oh, I Maui would have stealing that. fire. Okay, is I would say thanks to the movie Moana. I was going to ask if that might is be a the, pretty yeah. well known uh, fact now. Even though, um, for anyone listening, I love the movie Moana and I love the movie Hercules. Yes, but both of those movies are just Disney taking someone of a culture and being like, all the cool things that happened in your culture, we're going to say you did them now. Mm-hmm. Um, Disney's Hercules is not <laughs> very accurate. Um, well, it's accurate as in those things happen to different heroes at different times yeah. and different whatevers. Um, but Hercules didn't do them. And so same thing with Maui, with a few exceptions. Maui did uh, lasso the sun, like he says in his song. He definitely okay. did ra- raise up islands with his hook. He he definitely did steal fire for the humans. Okay. Um, or for himself. But, you know, he stole fire. Okay. Um, and so if you're not aware, Maui is a Polynesian deity. Right. Um, so the cultures that create these myths are, of course, separated by, I don't know, I'm not good at this, three oceans, some seas in there, I don't know, a, <laughs> a continent bunch of space. for sure, yeah. uh, hundreds of years, yeah, hundreds and hundreds. So, you know, interesting that they both have these myths, you know, they both believe this thing, and as, a, as I said before, they're far from the only ones. Right. It's super cool that everyone kind of shares the same um Mythos, like we can find examples of trickster gods stealing fire from mankind in the Ojibwe in North America, um, in Georgian myth in the Caucasus Mountains, Sanskrit myth in India. Uh, even Jewish mythology claims this, saying that the fallen angel Azazel. Okay. And so, to clarify, you know, Jewish Old Testament, where fallen angels are demons. Right. Fallen angel slash demon. Um, Azazel, who stole the knowledge of working the forge from Yahweh to give to the humans in order to corrupt us and turn us away from God into sin. I Ouch. feel like the fallen angels and slash Satan just like want to give us stuff. And God's like, no, don't give the humans things. 
Okay. Don't give them well, knowledge. Don't give the humans knowledge how to work the forge. Don't don't tell the humans things. <laughs> I don't really get it, but oh well. Um, so what I'd like to do here in this episode is a bit of a mythological survey where I'll tell you a few stories from cultures who are very different, different places and different times. And um, we can all remark on the incredible similarities and the interesting differences and the implied importance of fire to our ancestors if everyone has a myth like this. Um, yeah. So sound good? It does. How about you teach me something? Okay. I'd like to start what I think is the most appropriate place, Africa, the birthplace of okay. humanity, um, with the, the sand people. Okay. So who are the sand? They're um, indigenous hunter-gatherers. They're thought to be the original inhabitants of the southern Africa. Not South Africa. Southern Africa. Right. Um, long before the arrival of the Khoi Khoi people. And the San and the Khoi Khoi together are the Khoisian ethnic group. Okay. Um, so one of their most important deities is called Kagan. He's a trickster deity, as many of these gods will be. Um, and he's in many of the, the San's stories. Um, he could transform into lots of different forms, like the mantis and the eland, the hare, the vulture, the snake, and even a character they call the Sand Man. <laughs> Does he enter at any time? Um, I don't know, but I guarantee you he existed before Enter Sandman was written. So. Oh, well, okay. Gar- guarantee you about that. Maybe it's about him, is what you're saying. <laughs> Clearly. Um, so this is the story of how Mantis steals fire for the Sand People. Uh, so a long, long time ago, the Sand People were all very happy during the daytime with the sun shining brightly, the gods smiling down upon them. And at night, they believe the gods go to sleep, taking the sun with them. Okay, sure. The moon and the stars had been hiding from the sun all day. They would now come out and give some light, but it was too dark to do much else. The people would feel cold. Everyone would have to sit as close to each other as possible. The adults had to stay awake and guard the children in case hyenas or lions came too close. Right. Um, so so Kagan is in the form of Mantis in this story, and he sees all the children and the adults are sad and unhappy, and he wants to help them and bring them light and warmth. And... Mandis had noticed that for some time, Ostrich had been behaving strangely. Uh-oh. Especially when he ate. Uh-oh. Um, his food always smelled different and more delicious than everyone else's food. Ostrich was up to something. Yeah, I'm skeptical of this Mantis Ostrich. Mantis is going to figure this out. So Mantis follows him. And, well, first, let's say in the olden days, the Ostrich was a much more beautiful bird. Oh, he was covered in this silvery white plumage of feather all over his body, not a single black feather. Okay. During the day, he would dazzle and gleam in the sun in the Kalahari Desert, you know, reflecting yeah. that beautiful sunlight. And in those days, ostrich could even fly. Because of all the He was feathers. magnificent. Yeah. I don't know. Just because he's so magnificent, he had to be able to fly. I don't know. Physics be darned. Well, if he had bigger wings with lots of feathers, sure. Yeah. So one day, unnoticed by Ostrich, Mantis sees when it's time to eat, Ostrich secretly, you know, took some glowing embers of fire out from beneath his wings. And he dipped his food in it. And when he finished eating, he carefully tucked the fire back under his wings. So it's like... Strutted off through the Kalahari. Don't overthink it. Portable barbecue. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Um, Mantis knew Ostrich is going to deny knowing about the fire. So you know, he's not going to share. Mantis just knows already. He's being so secretive. He's not going to share. So he's going to make this clever plan to trick Ostrich. Of course. Um, he excitedly yells to Ostrich, come quick. Look, I found this tree with the most delicious yellow plums I've ever tasted. So, you know, Ostrich comes running. Yellow plums were his favorite food after all. Tricky Mantis. Well, um, yellow plum dipped in fire. <laughs> Ew. I, I don't know if that sounds hey, I'm just following the story here, okay? Yeah. Yeah. So, Ostrich, of course, gets very excited and starts eating all the plums. He'd never seen so many plums on a tree before. Um, he was so excited, the myth says, he forgot to call his wife and tell her to come eat some plums. Uh-oh. So, for shame, Ostrich. Yeah. 
This is going to be a problem. I don't know. I don't. I actually don't think it comes up again. At least not in this retelling. I was surprised. That's because doesn't he doesn't have a wife after this anymore. <laughs> so, Ostrich is so excited and telling Mantis, oh, delicious. Good job. And Mantis goes, no, 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 no. Those aren't even the best plums. The best are at the top. Like, reach much higher. Um, so, okay. He's reaching higher and higher. As he reached up higher, he's losing his balance a little bit. So, he stretches out his wings. Mm-hmm. And... Mantis darts in and grabs some fire from under Ostrich's wings and ran off. Ostrich chases Mantis. Okay. You might expect this, but Ostrich is faster than Mantis. Wow. Um, so Mantis tries to outwit him. He picked up the warm red sand of the Kalahari Desert and throws it into Ostrich's eyes. Obviously, Ostrich is blinded temporarily, and starts flapping his wings to get the dust out of his eyes. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh is right. Are some feathers about to start on fire? Hostage had forgot about the rest of the fire under his wings. By the time he managed to put out the fire, most of his feathers were burned black. You didn't see that coming, did you? Even though you just called it. Of course you did, but you at home, you never saw that coming, did you? Um, except for the tips of the wings, right? Because he put out the fat. Like, that's why his white tips I see. It's of the like wings a, it's like a slow burn. Yeah. Like, down out, the... Out okay. from where he had tucked the, the you know, embers okay. close to his body. Slow burn out. So what happened every time um, he was flying? Uh, I have more questions than answers about this story, but I okay. also did not um, write it, so I don't know. But anyways, another consequence was his wings are so badly burnt, now ostrich can no longer fly. Right. can only run fast. Right. And to this day, Ostrich is so terribly ashamed of his new black feathers. They he puts his head in the sand, which is not <laughs> something they actually do. It just says he's never flown since, which okay. kind of contradicts that he was so injured. So I, I don't know which is the reason, but he's just never flown since. Also, he keeps his wings pressed tightly against his body all the time so that no one can take the little fire that he has left. That's why ostriches, you see them out there with their wings up against their body all the time. So if you ever need some fire, just find an ostrich. Find an ostrich and trick him with yellow plums. Okay. Um, Seems reasonable. So Mantis takes the fire to the sand people who are very happy, very warm. They play games, they dance, they clap, they sing. Mantis told them the story of how ostrich dipped his food in the fire. So the people tried the same and it made their food taste and smell delicious. Since that day, the sand people have always cooked the meat on the fire and have a tradition, cultural tradition of sharing stories around the fire. Makes sense. Um, so like many African cultures, you know, uh, they use animals to explain what's going on in the world around them as their spirits. Right. Representing of, of their deities. Um, similar to tribes in the Americas as well, indigenous tribes. Uh, So like in the Cherokee myth. Okay. The legend is that fire was either, this part's different in different versions. Fire is either on the other side of the world or it's on this island in a hollowed out sycamore tree. Why not both? One of those places. Yeah, it could be on the other side of the world on an island. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm just saying there are two different versions. Okay. And uh, so the animals know that the fire's there, wherever it is. Um, They're gathered together, all the animals, deities, spirits, whatever, um, to figure out how to get some fire. Um, The buzzard went first, according to one version of the story. And he's able to fly, obviously. So the location of the fire is not an issue. But his issue is he gets a hot coal of fire and doesn't know how to carry it back. So he tried to put it right on top of his head. Ooh. This burned all the feathers off the top of the buzzard's head. And then they turned black, and then he was too ashamed to fly. <laughs> and I think he keeps I, them tucked down against um, his head. No, more like he burned off all the feathers off of his head, so buzzards have a bald head. Anyways, he Fine. went and stuck his head in some water, and obviously no fire. Okay. Other versions say the raven went first. But the ravens don't have any bald patches. <laughs> no, but I don't know what color the raven used to be. Okay. We're going to see a right. theme yep. here of a lot of things turning black. Sure. So, raven flies 
and lands on the sycamore, hollow sycamore tree. And he sits there wondering what to do next and doesn't realize the heat is coming up higher and higher and it's scorched all his feathers black. Okay. He gets frightened. He flies off without the fire. Okay. Next, a little screech owl volunteers to go. He looks down into the hollow tree where the coals are burning and all of a sudden a blast of hot air came up, nearly burned out his eyes. And he manages to fly home, but it's a long time before he can see well and his eyes are red to this day. I thought this was going to be his name was Owl until he screeched about the hotness. No, there's a lot of owls. Oh, okay. The hooting Owl and the Horned Owl go. Okay. By the time they get to the hollow tree, the fire was burning so fiercely the smoke nearly blinds them. And ashes carry up, or carried up by the wind, mm-hmm. burn white rings around their eyes. Okay. Yeah, we're getting a lot of origin stories in here. Yeah, all at once. Okay, great. Um... At this point, none of the birds would volunteer to go anymore. It seems they to They think sense. this is a bad idea. Yeah. Snakes are next, logically. Logically. To because, the island? Because if it's an island, they're going to just like swim up there are, through the water. Yeah, okay. So we've got a little black racer snake. Again, I don't know what color it used to be, but it's also called the little black racer snake. So this feels... Like it turns black. Confusing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he goes, he swims across, he crawls through the grass, gets to the tree, finds a small hole in the bottom of the, the hollow, but the heat and the smoke are too much for him, and even though he can escape, his body is scorched black. Right. Yes. Then the great black snake, called the climber. We don't know what color he was either. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you can predict where this is going. I can, yes. Yeah, he, he swims over the island, climbs up the tree on the outside, as the black snake always does, it says. I, I don't know where these climbing snakes are, but that sounds sometimes like that might be a little creepy. Um, but, you know, when he puts his head down into the hole, the smoke chokes him. He falls into the burning stump and was also scorched. Yes. But, he, but he got out from inside the burning Wow, okay. Because he's a climber. Okay, sure. Wow. Yeah. So, the animals hold a meeting. They're all very terrified. This is not going well. No one's volunteering. Um, the water spider shows up, sometimes known as grandmother spider. Okay. And volunteers to go. Being a water spider, she can run on top of the water or dive to the bottom. And the question is, how is she going to bring the fire back? It seems reasonable. That's a question. Again, there are multiple versions here. One says she makes a little red clay bowl from the shore of the island. Okay. To carry this hot coal. Another version said she spins a bowl out of her spider silk. Okay. But one way or another, she makes a bowl. It's a good start. Like pottery. She gets a hot coal, fastens the bowl to her back, brings the coal to the other animals. She shares it with them. She shares it with the Cherokee people. The versions of the story with the clay bowl Mm -hmm. also go on to say Grandmother Spider teaches the Cherokee people pottery as well as bringing them fire. Right. Um... And so this water spider has what's called a tusty bowl pattern on its back to this day. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm not familiar with this spider, so... No, neither have I. And um, I can't find what a tusty bowl is besides just kind of like a bowl. I don't know what makes it okay. special. But it's kind of like a... It's an interesting marking if anyone Googles it. Um, so some other examples from like the indigenous peoples of the Americas, uh, in Algonquin myth, rabbit stole fire from an old man and his two daughters. Um, according to the Muscogees and Creeks, rabbit steals fire from the weasels. Okay. Weasels had it first. Uh, apparently. In Ojibwe myth, um, Nana Botsho, the hare, steals fire and gives it to the humans. So, so hares and of, rabbits yeah, okay. seem to be a popular figure for tricks is to gods. Is that like, um... They're able to, like, run fast so they can kind of steal and get away type of circumstance? I'm or? just guessing that in these traditions that they were the trickster god. That seems okay. to be more the pattern than anything else. Okay. Um, like, according to some of the Yukon First Nations peoples, uh, crow steals fire from a volcano in the middle, like, in an island, basically, in the middle of a lake. Sure. Uh, according to a Mazatec legend, the opossum gives fire to humanity. Fire falls from a star and an old woman keeps it for herself. Then the opossum took fire from the old woman and carries the flame on its tail, resulting in a hairless tail to this day. Right. Right. Um, 
You see how these go? <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, I'm trying to see a trend. Um, in a story from the uh, Langua or Enxet people of the Gran Chaco in Paraguay, um, a man steals fire from a bird after he notices the bird using it to cook snails with, like, burning sticks. Um, the bird then gets revenge on the man by creating a thunderstorm that damages the man's village. Oh. Birds creating thunderstorms. Anyways, sounds like a thunderbird to me. Zapdos. Yes. Exactly. Um, so, you know, similar pattern with this animal spirit stealing fire is seen in indigenous populations in Oceania, for instance. Okay. Um, in Australian Arab- Aboriginal mythology, Crow is the trickster god, deity, cultural hero type figure. Yep. Um, and ancestral spirit kind of all wrapped into one. Like the concept of god in a more pagan religion is sometimes they're, you know amongst the ruling class but they're still deified sometimes they are kind of a god sometimes they're just a you know helpful hero or spirit and seems to all get wrapped up into one thing which is kind of what crow was um so in this example in this story is from i'm not knowing how to pronounce this okay we're deary people of the Kulin nation yeah i don't think I can help um, with that one anyways their ancestral home is is the area around present-day malvern okay so and we're still in australia got it we we are in Australia now. Yeah. And this the story again is about crow bringing fire to mankind. Um so in the dream time, which is what they call the time of like myth in aboriginal stories, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. In the dream time, the only ones who had fire were the Carrot Gurk sisters. Okay. These were seven sisters who lived by the Yarra River, which is again where where Melbourne is now. Um, and, and anyways, they, they used fire to cook their food. They carried around... These are human sisters, though. Or a demigod or unknown? They're in the dream time. So kind of uh, mythological okay. women. I don't know if they're... They're not like gods, but I don't know if they're like But storied humans. or... Yeah, okay. Um, I, I can get I don't this. know. Yeah. I don't know. Um, anyways, so they carried around what are called digging sticks. You know... People just walk around to dig root vegetables with. And they had hot coals on the ends of their digging sticks. So while they were digging up their yams, they were cooking them at the same time. Seems pretty efficient. Apparently they cook instantly. But I wish yams cooked instantly. Well, it's because you're not using a digging stick. Mm, That's my problem. Or a hot coal. I wonder if I just stab a yam with a hot coal. That's That's how you cook it. Anyways, Wang is the name of the crow. Okay. By the way. Crow, Wang, finds one of these cooked yams and is like, you know, blown away. It's so much more delicious than a raw yam, which I can see. Yeah, yeah I, I can get that. Yeah. yeah. So he asks, asks the sisters to share their secret of fire with him and they refuse. They always do. Wang, being a trickster god, sets up a trick to get the fire. You know, stick to your strengths and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, he catches a... They don't say how many. They say a great number of snakes. A great number. And then he, like, stuffs them all into an anthill. Like, hides them in an anthill. Okay. I thought this was going in the direction of them in the air, like snakes on the plane, but it's not. No. Okay. Then he summons the Carrot Gurk sisters to tell them, you know, he's found this really tasty ant larva. So much more delicious than yams. You should try some. And so the women start digging into the ant hell with their digging sticks. And that makes the snakes pretty mad because no one really likes being poked with hot sticks. Or buried. But especially snakes. Yeah. I can imagine they're pretty furious about everything right now. So the snakes attack the women. And the women attack the snakes because the snakes are attacking the women. Sure. And during this kerfuffle, the hot coals fly off the digging sticks. And... Wang darts in, gathers them up, and hides them in his kangaroo skin bag. Okay. I feel like we just got there suddenly, but okay. Which part? The fact that he has a bag made of kangaroo. I mean, does that seem odd to you in Australian Aboriginal mythology? It did at first because I was thinking more like it was a pouch on the crow. (laughs) (laughs) And then... Halfway through, I realized what was happening, and it's it was like just less like a leather bag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I get it. Just you know, that's an awesome misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, so he gets away. 
because the Carrot Gurk sisters can't fly. Um, and uh, there was another creator deity there to witness all of this, by the way. Bunjil the Eagle Hawk. Ooh. He swoops in the ass wing, you know, for some of those coals. He wants to cook a possum. Wang's like, can I cook it for you? I don't really want to give up control of any of these bad boys. And um, that does not sit well with Bunjil. Sure. It's pretty powerful. And uh, all the animals besides had heard their conversation. So at this point, they all gathered around Wang, clamoring for their own share of this fire. And he gets all frightened and flings live coals at them. Okay. Um, so, now I'm going to say some fun words. Okay. Korok Goru, the fire-tailed finch, picked up some of the coals and hid them behind his back. And that's why fire finches now have red tails. Perfect. Bunjil's shamans, yes, he has two shamans, Jerk Jerk, the nankeen kestrel, and Thara, the quail hawk, gather up the rest of the coals. Not before it starts a brush fire. Right. And so are they black or red, those birds? Well, now Crow is black because Crow got burned by the brush fire. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, you, see, you, you got close. You saw yeah. you saw the pattern. The pattern is someone's going to turn black in these stories. Or, or red in that one case. That's the fire tailed finch. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Then the Carrot Gurk sisters were swept into the sky, where they represent the Pleiades. The stars are said to represent the glowing coals of their digging sticks. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So, I want to continue I mean, with... That one felt a little bit like that was the deity stuck, or uh, stealing fire from humans, but I'll let it slide. But that's what I'm saying. Not all of them are like this direct, like, stealing fire from the gods. A lot of them are like stealing fire from an animal or something. Yeah, but in most of the other ones, it was stole fire from and gave to the humans. I'm just saying in this case, it was... A lot of these, they don't give it to the humans. It's just themselves. Like, these animals have it. But since animals kind of represent... And I think that there might be some... I'm not super familiar with all these cultures, right? There might be some implied... And then, of course or rather taught our people how to do this thing. I, I don't know. But mm-hmm. it wasn't in these stories. So. Okay. Still cool. Not implicitly said that it's, it's happening. Um, yeah. So we were in Australia. And I figure let's continue Oceania. Sure. A little bit here. And get to kind of the first of the two most famous stories and talk about Maui. Okay. So Maui is a great cultural hero. Um, a trickster. Not necessarily thought of as a deity. Like more a folk hero, greatest leader of legend and myth. Like maybe not necessarily mortal or normal, but not a deity. Not worshipped, certainly. Kind of a weird relationship is what I'm saying. And obviously Mm -hmm. so many different Polynesian... um, Different Polynesian traditions exist. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Samoa has their own. Hawaii would have their own stories. You know, New Zealand, like the Maori have their own stories. Like all these areas, Fijian, like they have Polynesian mythology, but they have their own stories with similar or the same people. Just kind of like the mythology of, I don't know, when we talked about the British Isles. Similar characters, not the same exact stories and such. Um, So it's different from culture to culture, but the main kind of exploits do remain similar. You know... What I was kind of talking about before, capturing the sun to lengthen the days and, you know, raising islands with his magical hook. And like I said, the stealing fire. Um, this kind of myth goes as only as far west as, as the islands where New Guinea are. And then, I mean, it's weird to say to say west and I know to say all the way as east as, you know, Hawaii, Samoa over there. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in that our geography. minds, we don't think of it as east. But when you're starting... In Oceania, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so, I mean, it's just, it's, uh, it's cool, all the different versions that have come up. So, um, let's say Maori mythology, mm-hmm. start there. Uh, Maori live mostly New Zealand in that area. 
Um, so Maui wanted to know where the fire came from. This is this is how the myth goes in Maori mythology. So he decides one night to go among the villages. He spends all night putting out every fire. Everywhere. And in the morning, he's like, uh-oh, we have no fire. What do we do? And so Maori's mother, Taranga, who was the the leader, like chieftain, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, someone's going to have to go ask Mahoika, the goddess fire, for more fire. I mean, it's good that they have one designated goddess for it. That's good. Yeah. Well, I mean, Maui did know about this. Did know about this person, goddess. Yeah. He, he did want to go see her. But he, you know, was pretty good at manipulative, pretty good at letting other people volunteer and him be like, but you can't go because of this. Oh, no, I'll have to go. Oh, shucks. Um, and he was, by the way, her grandson, by the way, the goddess, okay. of, the goddess of fire. Oh. In this, oh, in this story. Like, okay. in, in this mythology, he is the goddess of fire's grandson. So, you know, some, some relationship there. deity-ishness. Okay. So he goes and finds her. She lives in a cave in a burning mound at the end of the earth. But I mean, he's a demigod? I don't know. He's kind of demi-person. She, uh, so she gives Maui one of her burning toenails or fingernails, depending on the myth, to go relight the fires. Mm. And then Maui, you know, gets a few steps away and puts this thing out. Goes back and says, I need another one. And he did that just like over and over until she's out of nails and she's like, dude, what are you doing? And she sends fire to pursue Maui. She's really mad. Well, so, she has no fingernails or toenails anymore. She's done I mean, it 20 times. She might have, like, one or two. I think she has one left at this point of the story. Okay. It's important. She has one left. Okay. So, you know, Maui's running from the fire. He's only able to survive by begging the god of weather to put this fire out with his rain. Then Ma- Mahoika throws her last fingernail or toenail at Maui. Her last nail. It misses him and hits some trees. Including things I'm not going to say correctly, Mahoi and the Kaiko Mako trees. Anyways, Maui collects the sticks from these trees, brings them back to his village, rubs them together, and it makes fire. It teaches all the people okay. in all the villages. Now the people know how to make fire. Very cool. So that's that's one story. Um, Hawaiian mythology has a quite different... Well, geographically, those two are... Uh, pretty spread apart, yeah. Yeah. Um, probably chronologically as well. It took a while to get over there. I would assume so, yeah. Um, so they say something maybe slightly less impressive than kind of battling a goddess of fire, which is that Maui stole it from some mud hens. Mud hens. Are those mud hens. chickens? Right. Ducks? More like ducks than chickens, but yeah, like that okay. kind of fowl, poultry sure. type of bird that lives in Hawaii. Okay. Yes. That's so, why I'm not familiar with them. Um, probably, probably. They're not cold weather birds by any stretch of the imagination. So the story goes that Maui and his brothers had been without fire for a long, long time. Um, the great volcano Haleakala had become extinct and they just lost all the coals they were trying to save. So they knew of a tribe of intelligent birds. I know mud hens don't sound intelligent, but apparently they were. Sure. Yeah, no problem. Um, And these intelligent birds had mastered the art of fire making. Maui would be fishing and he'd see a pillar of smoke on the mountain. And whenever he saw it, he'd rush over there. But whenever he got there, they'd be finished. They'd be scratching out the fire by the time Maui found them. Maui and the brothers thought, okay, we're going to follow them. We're just going to watch them. But it had been days, and mud hens must have known they are being watched because they weren't making any fires. So the brothers got frustrated, left to fish again. Whenever they glanced back at the mountains where the mud hens live, sure enough, smoke and flames. Of course. This happened over and over. They tried everything they could think of. They tried to trick the mud hens by splitting up with Maui hiding and watching them and the other brothers fishing. But the mud hens would count the fishermen at dawn before lighting a fire. And if they didn't find four, they didn't build their fire. Very smart. Right? These are smart birds. So finally, Maui rolls some clothes together and builds a fake Maui. Mm -hmm. Puts them in the boat and snuck off to hide in the mountains. At dawn, the mud hens count the fishermen and they count four and they begin to prepare to light a fire. 
instead of just watching them and finding out how they did it, which is what I thought Maui was going to do, he actually leaps out and captures the leader mud hen before they could light the fire. Oh. Um, and he's very, very angry. And he just started, he's going to kill her. Hmm. And she's all, mm, if you kill me, my secret's going to die with me, and you're not going to know how to make fire. Yeah, it's not very good hostage negotiation, really. Right? So he calms down and remembers why he's even here. He was just so mad that made him work so hard for this, you know? Yeah. Um, and the mud hen said, okay, I'll teach you that make fire, you have to rub two sticks together. But she didn't tell him what sticks. Or she did, but there it was always wrong. She was basically lying. She was messing with him is what I'm saying. So first she told him to use water plants. Hmm. Here it goes sound right. together and some water came out. So then he's mad and he starts to strangle her until she tells him something else. And then she says to try reeds, which bend and break. So then back to the strangling. And this is how this whole story goes. Okay. She says something, something silly happens. He strangles the bird over and over and over and over. So... Um, Maui tried tree after tree, strangling the bird, and finally, when the bird's almost dead, luckily, finds the right. It's a very resilient sense. bird to go through that many stranglings. Right? But, yeah, okay, good. Yeah, no coincidence there at all. And then Maui, Maui finds fire, turns to the bird and says, he's a badass, he says, there's one more thing to rub. And then... He burns the mud hen? Just a little. Okay. He rubs a fire stick on top of her head until her feathers fell off the top of her head, you see. Yeah. So now she's a vulture. <laughs> You'd have to um, Google this if you want to see, but the Hawaiian mud hen has had a bald head ever since. And the Hawaiians have had the secrets of making fire. Very good. So I don't know what story is better than the Maori one or the Hawaiian one, but let's throw in the Samoan one. For good measure. Yeah. And, and then we'll see. Yeah. Okay. So in, in Samoan mythology, Maui um, is more often called Tiki Tiki. Okay. So one thing I learned is that the T's and the apostrophes and the K's in Polynesian-like languages pretty much all sound like T and K. Like, they, they okay. like are all interchangeably sounding like T's and K's. So Tiki Tiki can be spelt... Um, K-I apostrophe I, K-I apostrophe I, or T-I apostrophe I, T-I apostrophe I. Anyways, these mm. are all valid ways spelled tiki-tiki. Anyways, it's very confusing, and I'm pronouncing everything wrong, and I'm so sorry to anyone that knows what they're <laughs> supposed to be listening for. Right. Um, so, in this story, a young tiki-tiki is very curious about where his father, Talanga, is going every day when he leaves the house. He you know, follows him sneakily and sees him walk up and say something to a wall and the wall opens up and lets him through. And okay. So one day he sneaks up close enough to hear what his father's saying. He goes and says the same thing to the wall after the wall lets him in and turns out it was a wall to the underworld. Oh, yeah. Turn. Okay. Um, yeah. And so the underworld is home to Mafui. Mafui. I'm going to say Mafui. Sure. Um, the earthquake god. Tiki Tiki wanders through the underworld until he finds his dad working. Tolonga is not super mad, but he's like kind of scared and like, oh, you just like, just work. Just be quiet. Do not make Mafui mad. If you're going to be here, you just got to work. <laughs> so while they're working, Tiki Tiki noticed some smoke and asks his father where it's coming from. And Tolonga says, oh, Mafui has fire. So Tiki Tiki went to Mafui and asked him for some fire. Reasonable. Okay, good. Um, Mafui gave him a little bit. So unlike every other story. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Tiki Tiki makes this like stone oven type contraption and sticks the fire in and, and he wants to cook the taro root he's been harvesting. Um, again, that'd be just not good raw. So yeah, Seems, you should yeah, cook the taro root. Yeah. Um, but Mafui comes and blows the fire out, scattering all the rocks and Tiki Tiki is mad. Uh-oh. He's mad. And so what results is an epic battle, the likes of which the underworld has never seen. Volcanoes? Tiki Tiki eventually breaks off Mafui's right arm. Just breaks it off. And then he catches his left arm. And he starts twisting it. And 
Mafui is actually really scared. He's like, oh, just anything you want. Please stop. I really need one arm. Like, I think with one arm, I could still do my duty, which is to keep Samoa flat with mm-hmm. earthquakes. Okay. That was his duty. I think I could do this with one arm. Will you take 100 wives to just leave my left arm alone? Okay. <laughs> How can I govern the earthquakes with no arms? So Tiki Tiki says, no, mm. I'm not interested, like, at all. So Mafui is going to offer something better. The secret of fire that he can take back to the upper world. Okay. Tiki Tiki accepts this offer. It's a pretty good offer. He learns that the gods had hidden eternal fire in trees, and it can be extracted by rubbing the sticks together. Okay. So we end up in a very similar place. We we will on most of those stories where they actually talk about how to make fire, because that was how our human ancestors mostly did learn to make fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really thought in this one that their battle was going to turn into volcanoes, but he left me hanging. It's okay. I think there were volcanoes long, long time before Maui. Remember, we were talking about that extinct volcano? I, I mean, yeah, I was just hoping that in this mm. one case, that's how it came out. Fair but, enough. That's all right. Fair enough to hope for. Um, Tongan mythology, Tahitian mythology, they all have different stories like that. Um, but we're going to kind of do a big change in gears here. Okay. You'll notice a tone shift from the type of myth we've been talking about so far to um, the the European or proto-Indo-European type of myths. Okay. Um, and I would say the biggest tone shift is the, the punishment aspect that comes in with the, the proto-European, Indo-European mythologies, which is that similar thing happens. A trickster god shows fire for the humans. This is more focused on the humans, though. And then they are punished okay. for doing so. So this reminds yes, me of Prometheus Yes, there here. was punishment for the in, in what we just talked about as in the animal got their tail burned, the animal got their head burned, or whatever. Yeah. But this is a conscious punishment by the gods. Right. So let's talk about Prometheus. Again, definitely the most famous example. Of course. Um, Prometheus is a titan. Mm-hmm. Prometheus is from Greek mythology, but and, and of course, later by extension, Roman mythology. Um He's a titan, the generation who birthed the Olympians. Correct. Um, He is still on Olympus Mm -hmm. because unlike most of the other titans, he supported the Olympians in the Titanomachy, the the war between the titans and the Olympians. So Prometheus and his brother Epimetheus and their mother are all still, who's just Themis, Theus? Metheus. I don't remember her name. Her name means knowledge or thought. It's it's a very it's just the last part of both their names. I can't remember it completely. Anyways, they're on, on Olympus, uh, Olympus, and they're given a job, which is to imbue all of creation with their special powers or characteristics. Right. Um, I mean, to be fair, Prometheus was given this job. Mm, correct. Prometheus for thought is what his name means. They thought this would be a very good job. For such a thinking person. But then Epimetheus got really sad that he never gets anything important to do. And just begs his brother to just let him do it. He's going to do a really good job. Please, please let him do it. So Prometheus, just like, sure, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, go for it. Fine. I have to check all your work anyways. We say amount of work for me, whatever. Yeah, I'll do quality control. You do all the work. Yeah. Right. Um... So in this way, he, he was kind of a creation, creator god, which a, a decent amount of these gods in these stories are. Probably that's because they have that relationship with, with humans, because they're a creator god. Right. Um, like in those indigenous myth, Crow was a creator deity as well as trickster. Um, so Prometheus always had a soft spot for humans. And why is that? Well... Epimetheus did a really good job, actually, giving powers to all of creation. Did a really good job, but he did forget about humans. Like, he just forgot us in the corner. So, we didn't get any powers. And Prometheus checked his work and was like, "Uh uh-oh, he didn't give this thing anything. And Epimetheus goes, "Uh uh-oh, I don't have any left. 
So humans were just like, they were just on their own. Um, and that's why I think Prometheus had such a soft spot. He felt bad. We got shafted. It was kind of his job to make sure it didn't happen. So poor useless humans. Just didn't want to get fired, really. <laughs> yeah. He watches them evolve. He watches them change. He watches them socialize and gather. And he thinks, I know what I can give them. And he gives them intelligence. And this gives human speech and language and confidence. But also, on the other side of the coin, fear and anxiety and worry. And they now feel the need to protect themselves. Right. And the gods saw this and quickly worked to make humans afraid of them. And afraid of the gods' power, because with this fear came the idea of sacrifice. Yes. So, oh, and also because it was fun. The gods just thought that was fun, right? To provoke the humans. It wasn't just, it was just for fun, a lot of it. Yeah, we were good sport for them, for sure. Exactly. So, how are the humans going to sacrifice to these gods without any fire? That's what Prometheus comes up with as the perfect argument to sell this to Zeus. Because he knows humans can use fire to cook and keep themselves warm and protect themselves and other things to advance their societies. Like, he has room for... But he's smart enough to convince the Olympians they should totally give humans fire for all primo sacrifices for no other reason whatsoever. And so Zeus comes down to give the humans fire and to lay down a few ground rules. Right. I mean... Actually, more like just one ground rule. Here's the one ground rule. One very important rule is the best bits of the animals have to be sacrificed to the gods. And they only wanted the good stuff. And all of the good stuff was theirs only. Right. So, perfect cow is found. Prometheus is in charge of organizing the sacrifice with the humans. They're, they're his pet project, right? And remember, he is a trickster god as well. Prometheus is a trickster god. Correct. So he thinks, oh, I'll play a trick on Zeus. It's going to be real funny. He takes all the good bits of the cow, and then he wraps them up in the cow stomach to make it look disgusting. Yeah. And he takes all the gross bits of the cow, like the skeleton stuff, and then he wraps it up in a layer of fat to make it look appealing. Mm-hmm. And then he brings these two piles to Zeus, and he says, okay, you pick. Which of these piles do you want sacrificed in your honor? So Zeus, you know, does what we all expect him to and picks the fatty pile, which actually has the bad stuff in it. But Prometheus isn't just messing around. Because the consequence of this is that the humans get all the good stuff, the nutritious stuff, and they get taken care of. And that's what Prometheus wants. So smoke from the sacrifice starts wafting up to Mount Olympus. The gods go to smell it and instantly knew this is the bad bits of the cow. And Zeus is furious. He decides that this is probably worth ridding the planet of all the humans. Yep. Very slowly. So he takes away the fire again, sits back to watch the humans slowly fall mercy to all the more powerful animals and die out. And seems like an overreaction to me. Um, but Zeus has never overreacted before, so... Not in every situation ever. Yeah. Um, so, but you have to remember that this punishment is aimed at Prometheus more than it is at the humans. Correct. His little pets are suffering, and it's going to be torture for him to watch this. So Prometheus sneaks into Hephaestus's forge and takes some fire. And he brings it down to the humans on Earth. And this is all still the same date, by the way. This is the same day from the start when Zeus came and first brought the fire. And the reason this is important is this is fire day. Oh. And Zeus has declared at the start of fire day that anything done on fire day is final. Except for, I mean, he already took the fire away once. So I'm a little confused about that part. Yeah, but but if you get it in before midnight, it's okay. I think that's what it is. It's like apparently after the day ends, it's final. Okay. That's what I'm going with. The precedent will be set. To to explain this, yes. So Prometheus is able to stall Zeus until the next day, which means that people get to keep the fire because it's no longer fire day, so it's permanent, and they dance, and they're so happy. and, And then everyone knows this part of the story when Zeus decides to punish Prometheus for this. Um, For a little while. 
Prometheus was expecting. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him. Again, his name does mean forethought. He literally sees vision. He, he knows what's going to happen. He knows. Yeah. Um, Zeus had Hephaestus forge unbreakable chains. Correct. And Prometheus is chained naked to a mountain in the Caucasus Mountains. Yeah. Um, every day a massive eagle eats him. He then, well, his kidney, I thought. No. Or his liver. Mahesia just says insides. Could yeah. be lots of... Lots of him. My impression was that it was a specific organ. Some over and sources, over again. some sources do say that. But okay. There are there are multiple Many. sources. Yes. Got it. Some says liver. Some just says insides. You know. So he eats them. Gets better overnight. Eats them again the next day, and on and on. So um, this is goes. This is a long time. About um. So about for about thirty thousand years until right. Heracles comes and kills the eagle. Yep. Um. But that's not the end of the story. No. I've heard the story. I had heard this story a lot of times before I learned how this actually ends. Um, so now there's no more eagle eating him, but he's still chained up, and time stretches on for eons, just endlessly, endlessly until Prometheus hears a little rumor. He hears a rumor that Zeus has a thing for Thetis, mm-hmm. a sea goddess. Now, Prometheus, again, forethought, knows something. He knows Thetis is destined to bear a son who would be greater than his father. So Prometheus knows if Zeus was going to father her son, he'd probably be overthrown, as Zeus had overthrown his father, and his father had overthrown his father. Yeah, cycle two. It's a family tradition. So Prometheus tells Zeus he's got some vital information to trade for his freedom, and Zeus agrees to hear him out. Here's the information, agrees to the deal, Prometheus goes free, and Zeus did not knock up Thetis. And neither did Poseidon, who was also scared of this prophecy. Mm-hmm. That honor went to Peleus, father of Achilles, who was indeed pretty great. But he doesn't kill Peleus or overthrow Peleus in any way, so... no. Just no. end up being greater than. Yeah, I'm just saying. It's interesting that they're, the gods were so sure it would mean you know, being overthrown, but paranoia comes like, with being royal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And plus, in that culture, there's a lot of I, a lot of themes of fate and the oracle and what it actually means, and it doesn't really make sense until you know it yeah. plays out, sort of thing. Exactly. Um, so that story has interesting parallels with other Indo-European mythologies. Um, so really closely related is the story of Amirani, who was a cultural hero in Georgian mythology. He defies the gods by stealing fire. He's chained to a cave where an eagle pecks out his liver, but he's never freed. Um, the Vainak people of the Northern Caucasus have a hero called, why does it have a P and a K and an H all together at the start of this word? Fkarmat. Okay. Who brings fire to mankind and then is chained to Mount Kazbek as a punishment. And then, you know, we've got the Sanskrit. Um, it's called either Agni or Matarasvan, who brings hidden fire from the heaven to earth. Um, but that one is lacking the punishment. So um, as we can maybe see, the myth spreads up through Greece and then up through the Caucasus, like those yeah. regions. So those ones all probably heavily influenced each other. Sure. Um, as opposed to being independently... Um, developed or developed yeah Yeah. um and like i checked for some other things norris definitely doesn't have anything like this okay i didn't find anything in egyptian mythology like this okay um and there don't seem to be like a lot of examples in like east asian stories but there is one in the chinese tradition so i'll tell that one really quick um the chinese version of the theft of fire myth involves ibo son of diku okay so Diku, or Emperor Ku, is one of the five emperors of Chinese mythology. Um, Diku is said to travel by riding a dragon in spring and summer and a horse in autumn and winter. That has nothing to do with our story. I just thought that was cool, so I was going to say it. Yeah, I would probably just ride the dragon all year Yeah, round, I'm guessing okay. that dragons just don't like crisp or cool weather. That's my only guess. Sure, okay. Um, so to clarify, Emperor Ku is a real person. Mm-hmm. Who served as emperor around like 2400 BCE. So this is a long time ago, by the way. Yeah. Like much longer ago than Prometheus or any of those things. 2400 BCE. Right. Um, anyways, he's real. 
But most of the stuff written about him is probably complete legend slash myth. Sure. Okay. So, Ibu, Ibo, I don't know, and Shichen are the two oldest sons of Deku. And they don't get along. Um, one of their favorite pastimes was battling each other with weapons in the fields. Okay. Yeah. So war. So, yeah, I kind of was like, that's an interesting description of that. Um, so Deku is thinking if they can't get along, he's going to have to split them up. Yeah. Um, he sends them to opposite ends of the sky. Ibo gets to be in charge of the Shang star in the eastern sky, and Shichen is going to take care of the Shen star in the western sky. Sure. Very far apart, you see. When Ibo gets to Shang Kui, I hope I'm saying that right, where the star is, he finds out the people there, um, the people that worship the Shang star, don't have fire. And so he wants to steal them fire from heaven. But he just can't figure out how to control and hide it. After several failed attempts, he finally has a good solution. So he goes to heaven, he approaches the celestial fire, and he carefully burns the end of a thick grass rope that he like had made and brought with him, and then blows out the flames. Okay. He brings this rope back to the people who discover how clever Evo had been, because there are burning embers inside the thick rope, unseen by the other gods in heaven. So think of it just like incense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing I find very interesting about this is the grass rope. Because according to Hesiod's Theogony, Prometheus uses a hollow giant fennel stalk to hide the fire inside when he brings it down from Mount Olympus. So very similar. Right. Very yeah. similar. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Anyways, thanks to Ebo, humans will now and forevermore be able to cook their food and use torches. And this made the god of heaven angry. I don't know why these gods always get so mad that humans can do things, but he was mad. So he unleashes a great flood upon the earth, as angry gods do tend to do. Um, It swallows up farms, towns, and most of the people. Ibo tells the humans to run away, and he stands alone on a high platform guarding the last bit of the fire. Okay. After the floodwaters recede, the people return to the platform, and they find the fire is still burning. And they also find that Ibo has... The way they say it is closed his eyes forever. So the local people named this platform Ibo Altar. And to this day, it stands in Shangqi, Henan province. Cool. Yeah. So um, that's all the stories I'm going to tell. Just want to kind of, I don't know, quickly do a small amount of discussion. Sure. If that's all right. It is. Um, so I did kind of look up in reality what was the origins of fire that we know. Um, And it seems like, you know, earlier estimates were between 400,000, 500,000 years ago is is the first kind of controlled use of fire, but... Almost like domesticated fire. Right, but then it turned out that that's a crazy bad guess. Really? Um, better okay. evidence has shown that the earliest controlled use of fire by hominids was over 1.4 million years ago. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which is, just to clarify, way before Homo sapiens were a thing. Way before. Right, yeah. Um, so it kind of actually gives us evidence that hominids had culture before Homo sapiens. Mm-hmm. Like, not that, not that we shouldn't have kind of known or assumed this anyways, but there's evidence for it, right? Right. Um, however, that it's not until about 7,000 BCE that Neolithic humans, Stone Age humans, have reliable fire-making technology. So not just controlling it, but being able to reproduce it or, or like right. make it. So think of all those stories in which fire was provided by a hot coal or a hot ember, right? Yep. So what this suggests to us is that there is, oh man, well over a million years, well over a million that we controlled fire but couldn't create it. Yeah, more like and farmed it or tended stories, it. Right, because of these stories, we can kind of conclude that people were finding fire, probably lightning. Mm-hmm. This is this is the probable cause of most of the fire people would have come across, right? Yeah. Polynesians are different, you're right. They could have somehow found some way to get a hot coal from maybe a lava source. But um, 
anyways, they would have tended hot coals instead of made fire. And then, yeah, it wasn't until 7,000 BCE that we're finding evidence of they would either again, strike flint against pyrite um, or like a, what's called a fire drill. Mm-hmm. Where they would drill into wood, yep. fire drill, to yep. create the spark that they needed. I had never heard of that actually until I until have. I was just doing this research. So I don't I really did know take what an it archaeology looks like. class, and I remember that specifically. Yeah. What is it like? It's, uh, if I remember correctly, it's like a, a special piece of wood with um, like a, a bow, and then the drill was another. Uh, if I remember correctly, also wood with a point on it, and they'd use the bow. Oh, it's the thing that has like a stick in it. But okay, I feel like <clears> I've <throat> seen. I feel like I've seen that maybe. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So those were those things were found um, from Neolithic sites in Europe. The first um, human beings to control fire, of course, gradually learned all the things they could use it for. Um, eventually, they learned burning brush made ash and fertile soil and. Um, sometimes produced grasslands for more game to show up in. Right. Um, ancient humans, of course, would have really appreciated fire at night and it did mm-hmm. keep everyone much safer, much warmer. It necessitated everyone to gather at these central points. Sure. Around the fire, which, of course, quickens the transmission of culture and storytelling. What are you all going to do when you're so... That's where you get your elders telling stories and your myths. Um, Definitely creates community, that's for sure. Right. And and it becomes so important and it's also so destructive. And especially back then with no no way to control it whatsoever once it gets once it gets going. Um, it it of course take took on a very religious yeah. uh, significance. There's obviously various rituals across different cultures, like the Olympic flame. You know, flames that are lit and extinguished to mark the beginning and end of ceremonies, you know, go back to the sacred flames of Delphi. Um, There was, you know, purification, regeneration. These types of rituals tend to involve extinguishing, relighting fires, that type of thing. Um, And as we saw most cultures have a trickster figure or trickster deity um, in their oral tradition or, yeah, oral tradition. Yeah. And um, they show up everywhere. And it makes sense that they're also, like I said, often creation-oriented uh, as well. They care about the humans and they want them to have fire. Um, but we did see that... The commonalities are kind of uh, the types of myth. The Proto-Indo-European myths are very punishment-oriented, and they are more oriented towards humanity. Mm -hmm. Their gods are represented differently. Um, But then we saw a lot of Aboriginal myths in Australia, what would become Canada, Mexico, South America, um, Africa, all have more of a similar... Um, structure to the stories and similar tales and similar theme of and this is how that animal looks this way today and they're also very similar Mm -hmm. Um, that part I found super interesting Um, so oh just to clarify I did look this up so Homo erectus would have been around back when we think fire was first controlled so that would be the first hominid that we thought were were using fire Um, and I guess we don't know anything for sure, but my closing thought would be that besides creation myths, this this might be and probably is the oldest and most important type of mythology to people because it was such a powerful and scary concept. What else could be so powerful but the gods and the supernatural? And they knew they had no control and therefore had to put that control onto their, their deities. Um, so right. I can see why so many cultures... Um, both had fire coming from their gods and be something the gods didn't want to give up and be something that, you know, we had to talk about um, being thankful to receive from them. Um, yeah, so I just thought all that was super interesting. It definitely is. Any Anything to add on the analysis side? Any thoughts that you... Well, it's just interesting to think about fire from the perspective of someone and not in modern times and just how... Oh, I think you pointed this out, both like 
life improving but lethal at the same time dangerous and yet helpful magical it would have been yeah. so magical and mysterious mm-hmm. it just comes from comes seems from to sky. come from nowhere or, yeah. or seems to come forth out of wood like must have been trapped in there in the first place sort of idea yeah. you know whereas we know now chemically you know it's a a combustion reaction it's just hydrocarbons Transformation, yeah though. it is magic it's wonderful yeah, it's very cool um yeah so if you enjoyed this type of episode do you know check in periodically for when i do release part two and three like i said definitely flood myths and dragons and and there might be a part four eventually it's it's pretty interesting to compare myths across cultures Absolutely. um but for now we've been talking for quite long enough So I'd like to thank you all so much once again for listening to us here on Teach Me Something. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you've learned something new.